May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. I am joined this episode by my partner, Steve Polyakov, who is in our healthcare group. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Great, Rich. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thanks for being here. We're going to talk today about a unique issue in the healthcare industry, which is the extent to which non-doctors can get involved in medical practice. And that's uh, something that you've gotten involved in from time to time, Steve? I wish it was time to time. It's a, a large portion of my practice is structuring arrangements and deals between doctors and non-doctors to make sure that they're compliant with the law and that they can actually achieve their goals. And we're going to dive right into that issue. And as we usually do on this podcast, we're going to be a little bit focused on New York law, which is what we know know the best and do the most. So what's the framework, Steve, for assessing this kind of arrangement in the state of New York? I think it's imperative to understand the law in the state of New York, which is that pursuant to New York business, uh, corporate law, a non-doctor cannot have an ownership interest in a medical practice or a physician practice that includes physical therapy or any other licensed medical professional. If someone is an equity owner in that type of business, if that business is ever questioned or there's any kind of lawsuit, it can be effectively dissolved and deemed a null corporation. Additionally, medical professionals cannot practice unless they form a professional corporation or professional limited liability company, meaning that you cannot just start a corp or an LLC and practice medicine. It has to be one of them. All right. So let, let me ask you this. What's the reasoning for the sort of baseline rule that non-doctors can't be partners in medical practices? Why is that? What's the thinking? The thinking is to protect the public. The concern of the legislators was that businesses would be doing things that are not in the best interest of a patient, and they would be making medical decisions for a practice that are you know, more financially incentivized versus patient therapy. So the idea is to have the medical professional make the decisions of the practice, seeing which, you know, determining the patients to see in a kind of procedures versus maybe, you know, a, a big corporation or a big public company sort of pushing the interest of raising the stock price by treating specific injuries, specific patients, and, and, not, and neglecting other aspects of medicine, effectively. So you want medical decisions based on medicine and not on profitability. Is that fair to say? That's very fair to say. The restrictions we're talking about, in New York at least, are reflected in statutes. Is that right? That's correct. So in addition to New York Business Corporation Law Section 1507, which states that non-professionals can't own a medical practice, there is the anti-fee splitting law, which is New York Education Law Section 6530, which basically states that a doctor cannot or a medical practice cannot give a percentage of its revenue to non-doctors, meaning you cannot give percentage for someone that sends you business or someone that does marketing for you, you cannot incentivize them with anything you make off those patients. So for example, if a lab 
sends you patients and you make money off those patients, you can't pay them a percentage. That's deemed a no-go. Similarly, if you get in, if a medical practice enters a relationship with a management company and the management company does all the marketing, provides HR support, staff, resources such as uh, any kind of supplies, the medical practice cannot give a percentage of its revenue to that management company. And companies often get in trouble in those situations. What are, the, what are the penalties for violating those restrictions? So the penalties go to both whoever's splitting the revenue and the medical practice that's giving the split. So penalties include suspension of a license, revocation of a license. There's $10,000 fines per instance. Medical practitioners can be forced to do further education training. And there's been cases where you can even be ordered to do 100 hours of uh, public service. These restrictions on fee splitting, I assume they don't preclude things like a medical practice getting a loan from a bank. No, they do not. Because again, when you're talking about a loan from a bank, you're not splitting your revenue. You're paying back proceeds that you that you borrowed effectively. So a real reason for that is that when you take a loan from a bank, you agree on specific terms. So it does not matter on the volume of your practice. It's the repayment is not a percentage of your revenue. Could a medical practice enter into a factoring arrangement? They can. In fact, the reason, again, being that there are terms. So even though in a factoring situation where you pay back a loan based on directly taken from your receivables, Again, the issue is that it's flat fee, so it's not a percentage split of the practice. Typically, in a factoring scenario, you are paying back a loan. So there's a specific payment that goes back to a predetermined payment, not based on revenue, that goes back to the lender. All right. So it, it doesn't mean medical practices are completely on their own to, uh, in terms of financing, but it does restrict the kind of arrangement that can be made and and the kind of payments that can go out, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, oftentimes physicians, they primarily just want to practice medicine. They, they hate dealing with the business aspects of, you know, marketing, uh, bookkeeping, staffing for secretarial staff. So there is a possibility and we have structured uh, something called the uh, agreements with management service organizations or MSOs, which offer variety services to medical practices, such as educating and training staff, providing office space, managing the equipment of a practice, hiring administrative staff, dealing with payroll, marketing or quality assurance, making sure that the office is clean. Those are possible, but you have to follow specific guidelines in order not to cross that uh, fee splitting. Those are sort of back office functions, right? Things like payroll and uh, marketing, that kind of stuff. That's exactly right. So oftentimes, management companies want to benefit from having a practice grow based on their efforts, which, you know, it's back office from the perspective of dealing with the administrative tasks, but it could be front office from the perspective of marketing and putting out marketing material. And oftentimes they do want a percentage split, but they can't do that. So the way to structure these is agreeing on a fair market value, rate, flat rate, flat monthly rate, 
for those services that the management companies provide. And again, the doctors also have to be incredibly careful not to give over too much control to those companies because it could be deemed a fee splitting or it could be deemed that those companies are actually making the decisions for the practice. These issues have gone through the New York courts. They've gone all the way up to the Court of Appeals. Isn't that right? That's correct. There was a a big case that's sort of guiding on this. It's called Carathers, where an MRI service was being performed and uh, the management company basically ran the whole operation. And the contract terms basically benefited the MSO tremendously. So the lease was above fair market value. The MSO had the right to terminate the practice while the practice could not get out of the contract. The doctor gave so much control to the practice that he didn't even look at the MRI results. He just had the employees of the practice write up the results and he rubber stamped them. So the Court of Appeals found that the practice was fraudulently incorporated as it was actually controlled by licensed professionals and it allowed the insurance companies not to pay at all for past services, uh, claw back all what was deemed an overpayment. And uh, there are some criminal penalties as well. Right, because if you if you are not appropriately a medical operation, then then you shouldn't be receiving any of the payments in theory from the insurance. Is that right? That's exactly right. Because the, what they're trying to prevent is uh, insurance fraud, uh, meaning that uh, a business is creating a lot of churn and and just having a doc, doctor rubber stamp it, it's not to the benefit of the patient. So it's twofold. It's preventing insurance fraud. And the idea is to do what's the best for the patient. Is there any pushback? Is this being discussed at all in the legislature, the extent to which we should be allowing non-medical professionals to get involved in the financing of medical operations? So there's definitely been talk about allowing that to happen because right now it's very difficult for a solo practitioner or a small practice group to scale with the implementation of the new billing uh, ICD-10 pursuant to the Affordable Care Act, uh, practices are merging because they can't sustain because, again, the Affordable Care Act incentivizes efficiency, meaning volume uh, versus spending quality time with the patient. That's how reimbursement's determined. So there's been some noise that practitioners need help from funds, from hedge funds, effectively, to help manage them better, to make them more streamlined. Currently, there's nothing pending in the legislature. I believe recently, within the last year or two, there's been some proposals, been some noise, but nothing is currently pending. All right. Well, it's interesting to me. I know this. there's a similar discussion in the legal industry about the extent to which non-lawyers should be able to participate in the finances of law firms, which I see as sort of a parallel discussion that's been going on for a while. Absolutely. I know I've heard of that discussion as well. I I would say the difference is that in the medical space, they're much more heavily regulated and they're relying on government billing. So they, based on government coding and billing, it may make more sense in the medical space because again, the Medicare incentivizes, Medicaid incentivizes efficiency and streamlining and seeing more patients so that more people have access to care. So might need more business acumen versus, you know, a doctor wants to spend as much time as possible with the patient just to make sure that the patient's taken care of. So there's an argument from that side. And of course, the counter argument we've already discussed where we want to make sure it's what's best for the patient, not what's best for the bottom line. 
in, in the legal space, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit different. Yeah. I, I try not to, I, I try not to actually compare myself to a doctor. <laughs> I understand there are some fundamental differences in my skill set and, uh, the skill sets of a physician. Absolutely. And, you know, the doctors are happy to work with, with us and we're happy to work with them in terms of let them treat us and they'll come to us to sort of legal advice. So it, it's, it's a great relationship. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, Steve is a relatively recent addition to our firm. He is running and helping to build out our healthcare practice. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, the scope of your practice in healthcare law? Absolutely. So in the healthcare space, I work with medical practices to help them merge or uh, merge practices, deal with a lot of M&A work specifically, which requires a lot of administrative law work. It's not a simple deal where, you know, you, you sort of enter an agreement and money's exchanged and then it's a done deal. You have to notify and work with a lot of different government agencies, uh, particularly Medicare, Medicaid, the Department of Health, the Education Department which manages licenses. So it's a little bit more nuanced. I work with medical professionals in dealing with Medicare and Medicaid billing audits, meaning when the government takes a look at what a practice has been billing and determine whether those entities need to pay back a certain amount of funds. So I work with those audits. I, if there's an overpayment determination, I work through the appeals process with the medical practitioner. I help them with any kind of allegations of fraud and make sure that everything's above board a lot of compliance issues for medical practices, uh, also medical license defense. In addition to medical practices, I also work with pharmacies and independent pharmacy owners. So I help them similarly open new pharmacies, procure pharmacies, sell pharmacies, deal with pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs in terms of auditing, in terms of overpayment determination, and again, dealing with the Office of Professional Discipline for pharmacists. A very interesting practice, and we were really happy to have you join us. Oh, it's been great. Excellent. So we wrap up these episodes with a closing argument. What is a takeaway for our listeners on this issue? I think it's imperative to be compliant with the law. I know that doctors have business goals that they seek help from other sources. It's possible but you have to make sure you structure it right. You want to make sure there's no perception of fee splitting. There's no perception of fraud. So it is certainly doable and possible to enter into arrangement with business organizations that focus on the business while a doctor can focus on seeing patients. You just want to make sure it's structured right and you really want to deal with a healthcare law professional to make sure that everything's above board. All right. That sounds like pretty good advice. Thank you again for joining us and take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. 
We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief.